This is episode 172 of the Inner Fight Podcast. Welcome to Inner Fight Podcast. My name is Mark Smith, founder of InnerFight.com. In this episode of the podcast, I share with you Marathon de Sable 2015, my story. No matter where you are in the world, thanks for tuning in. Let's jump right in. Marathon de Sable, 2015. My story. In the lead up to events, such as the one I was encountering, everything is so full on, you rarely get time to think. Equipment, logistics, have you got this, have you got that, have you got the other? And then, on Wednesday, April 1st, 2015, every list was ticked off, and I was relaxed, in that I had done everything I could to prepare for the adventure ahead. And essentially, you have nothing to do but think. It's a weird time, and it's also the time that the final messages of encouragement and good luck pour in. These just literally blew me away. As Tom highlighted in disbelief as we boarded our first flight to London, he was getting messages from people he hadn't heard from in years, or barely even knew, to wish him all the best. I was experiencing the same. I guess at this time of having nothing to do but watch the clock tick, many people visit their reason for embarking on the challenge. I did not really, because I knew it so well. I knew it when I had pre-registered almost two years ago, and nothing had changed. I was going to run 250 kilometers across the Sahara in Marathon de Sable, widely known as the toughest foot race on earth. But why? For me, my reasons were simple. To push my limit, to see what my limit was, to make use of the body I was given. In the process, it was my objective to inspire others and have fun along the way. It was crystal clear. The clock ticked down on that Wednesday afternoon, and I used some of the time to reread messages I had received. Some of them really resonated with me, and I'm happy to share them here in hope that they can help others. Good luck, when or if it gets shitty. Just remember, it's as simple as putting one foot in front of the other. Think about sex for 250 kilometers, et voila. Just like you always tell me, one foot in front of the other. Best of luck, my man in the desert. Keep moving and keep the head strong. The body will take care of itself. A lot of people ask me about Holly, my wife, and how she deals with my habits. Well, that's a huge question, but I'll try to answer it related to this particular challenge. I simply have no idea. She is literally superhuman. I could not imagine what living with me and having to listen to me come home and say, I'm going to do this challenge or that challenge would be like. This is where she is without doubt the most amazing person I have ever met. I tell her the challenge, she asks a few questions around it, looks me in the eyes and says, that sounds cool. And really, once I have the look, it's almost like a nod of approval and her support. And we talk very little about it after that. She is an incredible person. It was no surprise that as we sat having dinner on that Wednesday night, the conversation was just normal, just like any other day. There is no emotional chat about me being away or in danger. It's just normal. Strange to some, but that's how we deal with it. And then at 6am on Thursday morning, I kissed her goodbye as she laid sleeping in bed and I told her that I'll miss her. As she does every time I go on a trip like this, she asked me to have fun but come back safely. How fitting is that? really my main objective. This connection is possibly why we're the best of friends. Emirates to Gatwick, the night in Gatwick, and then I woke up at 3 a.m. on Friday, the 4th of April. The day I had been waiting for for two years was finally here. It was four hours until our specially chartered plane was due to leave to Uzazat. We got into a lift at Gatwick and met Andy. Of course, we're all in the same boat. Running rucksack on our backs with water bottles on the front and a kit bag in our hands. Looking a bit nervous maybe, or was that just the excitement? You didn't need to ask people if they were doing MDS, you could just tell. From the outset, 
Andy seemed like a good guy, smiled a lot and was chatty. That's just what we we're going to need in the days ahead. He turned out to be a l- total legend and along with the other guys in the tent really made the trip memorable. The look on his face when James, another tent mate I will introduce later, declared he did not have the insoles for his shoes as the maid had washed them was absolutely priceless. Andy was a fireman from Oldham and did not mix his words. I got a sense at the outset he was made from tough stuff and he proved this during the trip multiple times. I never heard him once complain. What a total legend. As we headed to check-in, we quickly found out that Andy was mates with another friend of ours, Lee, who used to live in Dubai and was coming on the trip too. Very small world. It was obvious we were going to get on. It's funny when you turn up to events like these, as it's loaded with the diehards, people that just love this stuff, have a plethora of event finishes to their name, normally look about 15 years older than they really are, and all they talk about, in this case, is running and ultra running. When I started out on my ultra journey, I simply and slightly harshly blanketed this community as the running geeks. A massive generalization, but one that worked for me, and Tom connected with me real quick. A little bit about Tom. We played rugby together about eight years ago, but when I stopped playing, we never kept in touch until 2012 when a mutual friend reconnected us. To cut a long story short, I was sat in Starbucks, whose coffee I hate, chatting about challenges with Tom when he told me that he'd never run more than 10Ks. It was four weeks out from the 2014 Dubai Marathon, so I challenged him to do it. I was met with a normal bunch of excuses as to why it was not possible, to which I had all the answers. Five minutes later, Tom accepted the challenge. I liked that about him. Four weeks later, on his marathon debut, he had run sub four, just like I told him he would that day in Starbucks. At the end of the race, when I congratulated him, I told him it was now time to run a bit longer. Perhaps an easy thing to say, as I was a week out from my first ultramarathon. Six months later, he entered us into a 90k race through the Brecon Beacons. This was my chance to get a wingman for MDS. He agreed, and at 7am on Friday, the 3rd of April 2015, he was stood next to me, trying his best to blend in with the running geeks, wearing his desert running shoes and a pair of jeans. Well, hello there, Jerry Seinfeld, with his GoPro hanging off the back of his backpack. I could not have asked for a better guy to take on this adventure with. Through his great personality or idiotic stunts like running 45k through the desert in 35 degree heat just 10 days before we were set to leave for the Sahara, Tom always made me laugh and that's what you need on a trip like this. And just like that, us and all the geeks were checked in and on a plane. A few of the geeks really stood out. One in particular who I have to mention was a tall guy who already had his sand gaiters on which for those of you that know what they are, you're already wondering why. And for those that don't, just picture a guy walking through an international airport with a set of Wellington boots on in the era before some overrated superstar actually did that and society thought it was cool. Yeah, he looked ridiculous but did not care a bit. A strong character creator of this community for sure. I was excited about chatting to and learning from the geeks So the thought of a three-hour flight and a six-hour bus ride prior to eight days of running and then the same bus and plane in reverse excited me massively. Like most things in life, I had a game plan. It was simple. If I didn't like the person who I was talking to within the first 60 seconds, then I would stop the conversation and either read my Kindle or just walk away. Luckily, I got sat next to Nathan, who had some decent chat, so I refrained from throwing him out of the emergency exit. Excitement and nerves oozed out of everyone on the plane. So much geeky chat about what training you had done, what shoes you were using, and all of that emerged all around us. I was listening to a few different conversations at once while sussing out Nathan. Everyone had a similar objective on the flight, which was to secure seven other people to share a tent with for the week. Some people were taking this very seriously, and I heard it is important as your tent mates can really help morale during the race. So far, we had earmarked Andy and Nathan, as they were both on their own, so now only needed four more randoms to make up our tent. My policy on tent mates was similar to my general policy mentioned above. If they annoyed me, I would just not talk to them. At the same time, deep down, I was keen for a good crew in our tent, 
So it was my objective to control that as much as possible, but not to get hung up on it if I couldn't. Again, similar to my approach of life. What I do like to hear from new people that I meet at events like this is why they are doing it. A lot of people on face value have very similar reasons, but when you dig a little bit deeper, everyone has their own story, and that stuff interests me. Motivation is a huge part of what I do in life for other people, be it by training them or standing up and doing a talk. And I believe that first-hand experience from people themselves is worth a million textbooks. As I always say, my motivational talks are based on life experiences, but I am lucky to have had or to have heard from others and not from books. That's what I was looking forward to this week, learning more about people and how different humans work, how they think and why they do what they do. Did they really know why they were there or who they really were? That stuff excites me massively. On touchdown in Uzazat, we nailed six for our tent. Tom, Nathan, Andy, Brendan, soon to be nicknamed Irish, he was from Ireland obviously, and James. Talking of meeting new people, well Irish and James were actually from Dubai too, but I'd never met them before. I found out a bit about Nathan on the plane and immediately respected where he stood on things. He was a no-nonsense kind of guy and literally laughed after everything he said, not in an annoying way, but in a fun and positive way. He lived up in the Lake District and I could tell from a few things he casually said that he would be a total warrior on this trip. Brendan made us all laugh from the outset. He had clearly trained hard and put most of his life on hold in order to ensure he completed MDS this year. He had left no stone unturned on equipment, knowledge, and selection, and for that attribute, I immediately respected him. I was somewhat disappointed when on the first night I asked him if he has any jokes, to which he replied he was the world's worst joke teller. However, most of what Irish said during the week was amusing, and he often lifted our spirits. James was from England, and like Tom and I, had his own business in Dubai. His wife had recently, two weeks prior, delivered their second child, which he explained to me on the first day was hard to leave. But him and his wife had discussed that MDS was a goal of his, and it had to be done. I felt from that that he would turn out to be quite a character, and he certainly was. Uzazat Airport, on first impression, was a place that did not get much traffic. So three inbound, MDS-chartered flights that landed within 30 minutes of each other sent the whole place into chaos. The queue from the plane into immigration made me smile. I felt this was the real start of the adventure. This was all part of the test. I very quickly saw this trip as two tests. One obviously of my running ability, but the other of my patience for sitting, standing, queuing, waiting, and generally dealing with mental challenges. Once out of the airport, we sat on a stationary bus for two hours which we were told was not part of the five to six hour transfer time to the first bivouac camp. I remember distinctly looking at my watch when we got on the bus and it was 12.27. We got off the bus at the bivouac at 20.17. That may well be the longest bus trip of my life. But we were here. We were at the start of the race. We had spent our first night under the stars. I say under the stars. In fact, we had a very basic and I mean basic in the most basic sense of the word, tent, which every time the wind blew, not only collapsed at one corner, but also provided zero shelter from the elements, nor went any way to block out any sand. This bothered me for about one minute, until I reminded myself that we were in the middle of the Sahara, and were going to be here for the next week. Therefore, this was my new normal. I have many thoughts on normal these days, and how people define, or should I say, misdefine it. To me, normal is a bit like average. I have little desire to do it, be it, or think about it. Having said that, sand everywhere was what we're in for. And once you have the first layer on, it's actually okay. With the six of us comfortably in our new home, which was supposed to have eight, we were high-fiving each other that we had managed to get away with two less in the tent, which made it all the more spacious and luxurious. More space for sand and wind, maybe. Saturday was a day of queuing, or checks, should I say. I sympathize with the organizers at events like this, as people complain a lot about things that are really not that bad, or processes that just have to be done. Now, 
Just imagine having to administer 1,300 people from about 25 different countries, many of whom do not speak English or French, which were the two common languages. Each competitor had a mandatory kit list, minimum number of calories, and a whole backpack to be checked. We then needed to be medically cleared, issued our race number, GPS locator, and race chip. Not a simple process by any means. So yes, it took all day. Luckily, today was not the worst of sandstorms. That would have made things even more interesting. Something I found particularly comical on that Saturday was when one of the organizing team came to bid us good morning. They informed us we were now on Bauer time. The actual time in the location we were at, according to the international timeline, was 8 a.m. But Patrick Bauer, the organizer of the race, had decided we would now go off GMT for the rest of the week. So it would now be 7 a.m. Always nice to be able to control even the time in the middle of the desert. Once all our checks were done, there was actually nothing left to do. As we were left with nothing, most people decided to create something, which for many of us was unpacking and repacking their backpack, possibly up to 10 times, to ensure they A, had everything, and B, could maybe drop some weight. I think I redid mine twice, but still landed up with around 14 kilos in the bag, which was very heavy. I had an objective, not to be hungry, and hence most of my weight was food. My theory was that many things out of my control could go wrong. But if I ran into difficulties just by having a light backpack at the expense of food, which is essentially fuel, then that would be a massive error. So the plan for the first day was to have more rather than less, although I did not plan on it being that heavy. A nice test to start, I guessed. Naturally, everyone was up just before sunrise on Sunday morning, as it was the first day of the race. In times like these, you really see, as humans, how close we are to our animal friends. Sleeping in the open, we naturally wake up when day is breaking. We then run for the bathroom. It is this part of the logistics of MDS that surprised me the most. Females dropping their pants literally 10 meters from our tent for a dump. This freaked me out. A short walk to the bush would have been far better. I had been warned by my by previous MDS finisher who suffered dysentery due to other competitors' excrement being too close to him, something I was keen to avoid. With that in mind, I headed around 200 meters out of camp, but struggled to find a bush which had not already been utilized. As the workers ripped through the camp, taking about 60 seconds per tent to dismantle, it was not long before the near 200 tents were horizontal and packed, ready for transport to the next bivouac. At 8 a.m., we were summoned for what I could only presume was another hour of standing around based on the fact that the race was supposed to start at 9 a.m. And then the infamous address of the race director, Patrick, began. It's his bit. It's his tradition. It's his right. And it's clearly obvious no one listens. He waffled on for 20 minutes whilst the sun was heating up and all the 1,300 people wanted to do was get this race started. As he finally wrapped things up, he declared five minutes so they could arrange the helicopter. The crowd booed, but were brought to life an instant later as ACDC, Highway to Hell, started blaring out, and the mood was unreal. This was real. We're minutes from starting the toughest foot race on earth. With a 10-second countdown, we were off. The 2015 30th edition of Marathon de Sable was underway, and I was wearing big number 493. This was it. The first 13 kilometers into checkpoint one was just as I had expected. Faster than it should have been, heart rate exploding, packed with adrenaline, and everyone going way faster than they should. Checkpoint one, Tom and I managed to find the rest of the guys from our tent. And minutes after setting off from the checkpoint, we made a team decision based on the terrain that the game plan was a march. I ripped out my walking poles and charged on at 9 to 10 minutes per kilometer into checkpoint 2. From there, we're 11k out from the end of the day's stage. Head down and march was, continued, was the continued plan until we got 2k out, where as we came over a small ascent, we saw the second bivouac and, of course, started running for the finish. Day 1, done in 6 hours, 36 kilometers and no complaints at all. Everyone had told me to take it easy on day one. I have no clue where we were on the leaderboard, and to be honest, nor did I care. I was happy with the way it went. 
As we headed back to the tent, the banter started flying as we all got to know each other a bit more and we were pumped to be through day one. My priority was to cut weight out of my bag. I think I got rid of two kilos. Day one was hard on my shoulders. I re-looked at what food I really needed, recalculated my calories and just started throwing stuff out. As I lay there with the sun going down at the end of the first day, I was happy with life. Stage one done, full of food, no issues with my feet, and some good lads throwing around good banter in the tent. The highlight of the evening was the delivery of emails. Some of them were deep and emotional, others humorous, but all of them well received. The highlight of which was Holly did a strict muscle up yesterday. That made me happy and smile. I decided that I was not going to queue for an hour to mail Holly, but hope my phone got signal. It did not, so I resorted to the no news is good news approach and hope Holly was on the same page. I thought of her a lot after reading her mail and smiled a lot. I guess the first 5K of today was the most interesting for me. I thought about two things. Firstly, that there was a hell of a lot of kilometers ahead of me, but secondly, my desire for my finisher's medal. I don't know why I thought about the medal so much, but I did, and the more I thought about it, the more I wondered what it would symbolize. And then I had it. I would dedicate my finisher's medal to my wife, my family, and all those that believed in me. I was 5K into a 250K race and had already dedicated my medal. Was I insane? I'm not sure. Maybe that was a commitment. They were the people that mattered the most in my life. Holly was my best friend and biggest fan. My parents were incredible. When I look back on my life, the amount of support they had given me and sacrifice they had made to allow me to be who I am blows my mind day after day. Couple this with the sport and challenges I used to see my dad do as I grew up and you have a ton of motivation to make them proud. And then, of course, to those who believe in me, support me and actually take the time to send me a message, even if it only takes three to five seconds. You have no idea how much I appreciated that. I also appreciate those that support me and keep me real, my mentors, people that have achieved far more than me but still have the time and compassion to encourage me. All of these people in my life are total heroes and through this race, I somehow wanted to thank them. Day one was a great day. Late again was the start of the second stage. You can tell this race is run by the French and not the Swiss. We were told clearly at the start of today's stage that it was hard. 31 kilometers. Unsure of what Patrick's concept of hard really was, I was quite excited. Three brutal climbs today, ranging from 15% to 25% and 800 meters to 2 kilometers in length. We agreed a game plan with the guys in our tent and smashed straight into it once the countdown to today's stage was over. The start can best be described as a controlled stampede. 1,300 people in a race, I guess you'd expect that. We smashed out the first 8K at a decent pace before we hit the first climb, which slowed things right down. There is always a benefit to this, though, because as you climb, the view simply becomes epic. The next 4Ks of climbing into checkpoint 1 was incredible on the eyes. Legs? I'm not sure. As we kicked on from checkpoint 1, we had all our tent, less Irish, who we lost in the early part of the stage, in single file, singing songs terribly and pushing out six-minute Ks, which may not sound like much, but was a huge lift to morale and, of course, gets you to the end a touch faster. Luckily, four Ks later, the road got steep again, as at that pace, with the mercury rising, we would have hit more than the proverbial wall sooner or later. Up and along and over, it was checkpoint two, which signaled seven K to go. 2K up at a 25% incline mountain, then 5K down the other side with some token dunes, and we were done for the day. Five hours, 40 minutes, and everyone in good spirits, both mentally and physically. I have to say, I really enjoyed today. Totally amazing views, challenging signal track, and we were back in camp nice and early. I felt our game plan worked. My food and hydration are going well, and during one part of the day stage, I managed to put together the closing of a talk I'm scheduled to do in Manila in a few weeks' time. All I need to do now is figure out the opening in the middle, and we'll have a nice little seminar. That's a beautiful thing about this running and marching game. The quiet times, you can let your mind run wild, or you can do your head in. Another one of life's awesome choices, 
but one I felt people, I feel people make the wrong decision on. But hey, everyone has a choice. Back in our tent, Nathan has taken the nickname of Mountain Goat, later modified to the Horny Blue Goat, which we advised him to open a pub by that name eventually, and later just the Goat, due to his incredible ability in the mountains. We are all still in great spirits, and everything has a price tag of 10 euros, which I just don't believe will ever be paid. But it makes us laugh, and the value of a small laugh on morale is unreal. Day two, in the books. Less than 200 kilometers left, close to 12 hours of running complete. Tomorrow is going to be all about energy conservation, so that we can go into the long day in the best shape possible. It's a 36K stage, which I am just about to study and finalize a strategy on, which I'll later pitch to the guys in the tent for some buy-in. Waking up in the wild for the fourth day, and it was still an awesome way to start the day. This morning proved to me something that I've opened a number of my talks with, that the way your day goes is based on a choice you make when you wake up. I saw so many people wandering around camp this morning feeling sorry for themselves, chins down and moving at a snail's pace. I felt like bellowing out, liven up people, you control the day, it does not control you. We all have niggles here and there, but today is in front of us and it's 36k, day three. I refrained, but because I had said it in my head, I believed it and I started to action it. Was I feeling 100%? Are you kidding? I had my own fair share of issues, but I made a choice. Late again, stage three rolled into action at 8.42. I was in hell. My quads were killing. And as I looked down at my watch after I thought was 10 minutes running, only to see that three had passed, I felt like I was deeper in hell. Luckily, I had read the road book the night before and knew that at 5.7k, the track would become soft sand and there'd be no option but to walk. I set my small goal right there looked at our current speed and calculated how long it would take at that speed to reach the 5.7k mark, got my head down and punched it out. A bit of trawling through the sand and then one of my favorite parts of this race happened again. The whole field are in single file and just running through single track. Everyone in the same boat and you just get tucked in, head down and smash out the kilometers. It was beautiful in so many ways and sooner than we knew it, we're at the 14 kilometer checkpoint one. The pain of this morning and the first 5k was a distant memory. Lance was right. The pain was only temporary. It passes. So important to remember, but we often forget. The next stage was simply unreal. Possibly something my photos and videos can only describe. Just unreal. The final stage of the day was 11k. The mountain goat gave the order for the pain train to get moving. I had a pivotal role in this. As I had done the previous two days, I headed to the front with the rest of the guys falling in behind, again in single file, and basically pushed as hard as I could. Our nine-minute kilometers march pace was my goal. After a solid 40 minutes off the front, the track simply turned epic. Rolling dunes finished up with a savage mountain to climb. It was a special time. Tommy took charge of the pain train and, and the heat soared with not a breath of fresh air. It reminded me of Wahiba Sands, purely brutal. Again, the scenery numbed the pain. And as I passed one guy close to the top of the summit, who was in particular pain, I offered the words, when you're in hell, keep going, and motored on buying. I'm not usually one for the more well-known or cheesy motivational quotes, but right there at that time, it just seemed to make sense. He thanked me for it after the summit. I was happy with my decision. As we neared the top, Tom asked me if I was okay. Was anything sore? I tried to be as direct as possible as I said, everything hurts, but that's not going to get me to the top of this. From the moment we arrived at Camp 3, the conversation from everyone was about tomorrow's 92-kilometer stage. An email from Max who had mailed me daily until now with invaluable advice each time, summed things up perfectly. Marathon de Sable starts on the long day. I was excited, but also wondered what we'd been through so far. 18 hours of racing and 103 kilometers. Max had also said that we were doing great. 
Luckily, on Camp 3, I managed to get a phone signal, which meant an SMS to Holly and a phone call to my dad, who told me we were doing well. Holly was on a flight to Australia, so I didn't get to talk to her. I'd had a mail from her daily, and she was fine, so was I. Another great day in the Sahara. As day broke, on 8th of April, the camp was very quiet, but there was a look on everyone's face, which clearly said what they were thinking. As Patrick reiterated to us in his normal, boring morning rabble, today would be the longest stage in the history of MDS, with 91.7 kilometers to cover. I was under no illusion of the job at hand. Having done a 90k race before through the Brecon Beacons nine months earlier, I had the advantage and disadvantage for today's stage. The advantage as I knew I could handle such a distance, albeit the previous race had not been preceded by three days and 103 kilometers of running, having done it before, but as a disadvantage, as I remembered what it felt like, the highs and the lows, where the pain started and what mind games went on. With Max's advice ringing in my head, I declared my personal strategy to the tent, which although had a few points to it, was very straightforward. When it's flat, run. Two, when it's soft, walk. Three, when it's uphill, walk. Four, in the hottest part of the day, walk. Five, maintain an average speed of over 5.5k per hour throughout. Six, never stop or rest until the work is done. Seven, finish strong. And a final thought I had, but didn't share with the guys, was that no matter what I state I got myself into, there were going to be somebody out there hurting more. Shortly after 8am, we were off, 16 to 18 hours ahead of us. What do you think about in that first hour? Everything, absolutely everything. You calculate, recalculate, question your why, and try to occupy your mind. For me, it's always the hardest hour. The first half of today's race went perfectly to plan. We ran the flats at a good pace and marched at nine and a half minutes per kilometer when we had to. A couple of serious climbs slowed us down, but we're in the game, on the plan. After 35 kilometers, I'd figured out that kilometer 60 to 75 would be the hardest, and it was. The terrain was relentless, sand dunes, and all I could think about was Wahiba Sands. I was in hell. Everything hurt. Every step. Every breath. My legs were talking to me. And then I remembered the famous words of cyclist Jens Voigt. Shut up, legs! And surprisingly, it worked. I had no choice but to take a Voltaren at 65 kilometers, and luckily it kicked in fast. We had two checkpoints to go. 11 kilometers to the first one, and then another 11 kilometers to the final one, and then just over 6 kilometers to the finish. And as we left the checkpoint, we saw two competitors strung up on drips and wrapped in emergency blankets. Things were getting a bit real, and it was pitch black. I stopped being scared of the dark a few years ago, but the dark of the desert does something to you that's so hard to explain. I don't know if it's a fear or if it's just your mind playing games with you, especially after you've been moving for 12 hours. But something is different. Anyone can move distances at varying speeds during the day, but when you turn off the lights, the dynamics change. People stop talking, and it's incredibly hard to judge distances. On stage four, we had the added benefit of high-speed winds whipping sand and dust into our eyes. For the first hour of the first 11K stage, I was in really bad shape. I just couldn't move at the right speed. I was desperate for the toilet, number two, almost to the point of explosion. I had to stop and let nature take its course. Ten minutes later, and a cold brew coffee energy shot down, and everything changed. I was back, back to my maths, away from my demons that were flirting with me for that hour. It felt like no time, and we're at the penultimate checkpoint. Another 11K, and luckily the terrain eased, and we smashed it into oblivion, singing the whole way, and just trying to pick people off. 
2k out from the final checkpoint, we saw its lights. Morale shot up another level. That also may have something to do with the shot of coffee we had 30 minutes earlier. To call it a shot perhaps is inaccurate. I had a sachet of Nescafe, which I emptied into my mouth, followed by a slug on my water. It was possibly the worst taste I've ever had. I do not suggest you try it unless you're in the situation we were in. And then, of course, it's fine. We quickly revisited our game plan, which was to finish strong, and we actioned it. I said to Tom, let's play a game on the last, this last leg. Let's pick people off one by one and put as much time into them and anyone behind us as we can. Our target should be six, one per kilometer. Not that we're competitive at all. We agreed, but also agreed that we would be upbeat to anyone we pass and ask them to enjoy it, join us in our rush to the finish. We flew through the final checkpoint, barely stopping for water, and the game begun. To help us on our way, and just to let those we were catching know we were coming, we recited every song and scene from Top Gun that we could remember. As we passed our competitors, we invited them to join the pain train by saying, Welcome aboard the pain train. This train will not stop until the end. I marched in front with Tommy hot on my tail, and we had a few takers, who hopped on the train temporarily, but could not take the pace and blew out. I remember the trick I learnt from my running at school. When you're passing people, speed up so they no longer believe they can stay with you or catch you again. When you've done 85k already and are really hurting, it's hardly what you want to have done to you. And in reality, we probably didn't speed up at all. But it was just another mind game that helped us through. And then we could see the finish line illuminated in the dark night sky. I checked the watch and knew there was still 2K left, so quickly told Tom we needed to up the ante. I could not tell you what the terrain was like for the last 2K, or even if my feet touched it. Just over 17 hours after we had started, we crossed the finish line. Our work was done. The elation far outweighs the suffering we had endured. We were one stage of 42 0.2 kilometers away from getting what we came for, and it felt wild. Total count of people passed in the last six kilometers? 16. Some spoke to us. Others were so far gone, I don't think they knew where they were. Luckily, we were not looking for zombies to join the pain train. One thing I've learned from ultra running is that it's a sport where you see people do stuff to their bodies and minds that's beyond belief in so many ways. I've learned a great amount from it, and the key learning I have to share is that when you're totally smashed and you think you can't go any further, no matter what part of life, well, you can. And if you really want to, you will. The harsh part of ultra-running is that just because you stop, it doesn't mean the kilometers get any less. They lay there ahead of you, and here comes the advice that so many people that I truly respect shared with me. Just keep going. Or as another put it, never, never, never stop. For me, that attitude and those last 6K sums up a lot about life. A rest day lay ahead of us to gather ourselves, patch up our feet, and get ready to finish off the job we'd come to do. The longest stage in MDS history taught me a lot, and I had made it out the other side. For that, I was grateful. People rolled back into camp throughout the day in various states of consciousness. It seemed that no matter who you are, running 92K took its toll in some way. I had a few admin issues myself with my feet, so headed to the medical tent to see about them getting cleaned. I was there a total of 15 seconds as the place looked like a complete war zone. I didn't get it. Everyone was literally crying in their hat. I just thought to myself, guys, you've completed the longest stage of the race. We have a marathon left. Fire up or smile at least. This probably reflects my close to hatred of medical establishments as a whole. They're full of messed up people finding it hard to smile and see something positive in life. Not a cool environment to hang out in if you can avoid it. I got what I needed and headed back to my tent to perform my own surgery, which was obviously done whilst my tent mates made fun of me 
and we all laughed, the way it should be. I had a few superficial blisters, which needed to be kept clean, and had lost four toenails, three less than my last long ultra, which I saw as a massive bonus. At 5 p.m., a large catering truck rolled into the middle of a camp, which people immediately flocked to. Intrigued, Irish went over, only to come back with a can of Coke for each of us that was actually cold. There are many things I could wish for right now, but Coke was not one of them. With no other option, I indulged in my second can of Coke in over five years. The last one was given to me in the middle of Wahiba Sands. Is there a pattern? It made me feel quite ill. 7 a.m., April 10th, and we were on the start line for the final official stage of the 2015 Marathon de Sable. A small matter of a regular marathon, 42.2 kilometers ahead of us, and the race was complete. I stopped and thought about that for a second. Thus far, we had done 36K, 30K, 36K, and 92K on consecutive days. Now, we were going to run a marathon across this relentless Sahara desert. The more I thought about it, the more I couldn't figure out what I felt about it. What level of human endurance was being tested here? Is this the limit? I had no answers. But as I stood there with ACDC Highway to Hell blaring out for the final time, I was excited about what was going to happen, no matter what it was. Five minutes after checkpoint one, at 13 kilometers, I was on that highway. I was in hell. My body started to shut down. My legs stopped working. Complete agony. We had been running around six and a half minutes per K, and I was struggling to keep below seven. My heart was not overly high, but my legs were just not working. This was not cool with 29K to go on a stage that we had targeted to make up places. It was again a matter of shut up legs over and over again for 12K into the next checkpoint. I knew at that checkpoint it would be all downhill with only 18K left in the race, in the entire race. Coming into that checkpoint, I took a Voltaren in an attempt to make the pain go away. On the other side of the checkpoint, something changed. Something clicked. It was mental. I tried to rationalize what I'd been through in the previous stages and why I was where I was. We started to power again and charged through some steep dunes to checkpoint three, which signified eight kilometers to home. The game plan was simple from there. Every last ounce of heart, mind, energy, and passion was going into those kilometers. And of course, Pick people off one by one. We dropped the pace to 5 minutes 45 per kilometer, which is not overly fast, but given we already had 200 Ks in the legs, it was a big ask. My heart rate immediately shot through the roof, but comfortingly to a level that I'd been at before for, on the Concept 2 for 40 minutes. A quick calculation told me that I would need that and a little bit more, and this job was done. Suddenly, I felt no pain. It's incredible, once your mind is in the right place, how your body reacts. And then it started. We passed our first person, and then the second. And so it went on. I stopped counting at 20 with 1K to go. My lungs were exploding, but it was an unreal feeling. I was enjoying it. Coming over the top of the last hill and seeing the finish line 800 meters ahead was a strange feeling. I was just about to complete the toughest foot race on earth. It was almost over. I turned to Tom and said, thank you, as we clashed fists, and then we got back to the job at hand and finished the race, crossing the finish line with clasped hands. There's a video of me at the finish line, which I don't actually remember taking, but pretty much sums up how I was feeling. Everything hurt, absolutely everything. I'd spent the best part of five hours in the pain cave to clock a 5.17 marathon, which on the back of what we had done in the previous days, coupled with the terrain the marathon was across, I was very happy with, not to mention the state of my feet. And then it hit me. 
The feeling I'd once felt before at the end of my first marathon. Elation, but emptiness. The job was done. It was all over. The goal was complete. You cannot prepare for this moment in time, no matter how much you try. I was physically exhausted, living in a body that I'd simply abused for the last week, but at the same time had just completed an incredible feat of human endurance. It's a unique feeling and one you have to experience to understand. The Marathon de Sable tests you in so many ways. I have to be honest in that the running is not the hardest test, although it was by no means easy. It's the other stuff that if you let it, can torture and ultimately crush you. The eight nights sleeping under open skies, the constant wind of the Sahara, forcing sand into every orifice, the rationing of water, having to carry your food for the eight days in your pack, the lack of showers, the lack of toilets, the same set of clothes you put on day after day that smell progressively worse as the week goes on. Add to this the physical pain that running such distances causes, issues with your feet, or any range of other medical glitches that may not go your way. For me, that is the real challenge of the MDS, and to be honest, of life. I saw so many people losing their mind because it was sandy, or because it was hot, or they were not happy eating expedition food. It's the people that failed to administer everything outside of the running that were slowly ground down. Just like in life, you have to manage and manage well all the things that you are able to control. If you do this, your chances of success go through the roof. One cannot control a trip or a fall along the way, but one can control the reaction to it and so many other variables. So what has MDS taught me? I think I can sum it up in four points. One, your mind is key. For those that know me and know the Inner Fight brand, this will come as no surprise, but get your mind in gear by focusing on what you can tr- control and things tend to take care of themselves. I saw so many wet, mentally weak people go through hell from day one as they wasted their energy on things out of their control by being mentally weak. Two, never stop. When you want something bad enough, you have to be willing to go and go and go. The long stage taught me this, where for 17 hours we were moving forward. In life, there are so many distractions that take us off track and temporarily stop you from moving forward towards your goal. Leave them alone. If you really want something, then never stop until you get it. I wanted my MDS medal, and I got it. Three, smile and have fun. Those two things I've carried with me for a long time and will continue to do so. The amount of times we saw people out on the course totally broken and just gave them a smile or tried to have some fun with them to lift their spirits was unreal. And of course, in return, seeing them getting a lift lifted us even more. It's not always easy to smile and have fun in in certain circumstances, but I can tell you the effect is worth the effort. Four, humans are incredible. We know this already, but eight days in the Sahara only highlighted what an incredible race we really are. From the way we can adapt to different environments, to the way we are able to move forward and black out pain. Use this to your advantage in all areas of your life. If you ever think that something is too hard, a little bit out of your comfort zone, or beyond your ability, I can tell you right now that that's not the case, and you can achieve great things or complete the simple things in life in amazing ways, as you really are an incredible human being. I took 40 Voltaren tablets to the Sahara as a precaution to numb my pain. Why? Seven weeks before MDS was scheduled to start, I ran a 72-kilometer ultra and damaged my Achilles tendon. Since that day, until the start of MDS, I ran only three times covering less than 15 kilometers in total. I did not exercise at all on my legs and had medical treatment up to four times a week to try and get me in the best shape possible for the race. A week out, walking was still painful, but I was convincing myself I would be fine and it would be okay. In that final week, 
I woke up often in the night after dreams of failure due to my injury. I was terrified on so many levels. The first 13K of the race was the hardest as I felt out my leg. My focus did not change and I was willing to crawl the entire way around the Sahara to the end. It's a decision I had made. Luckily, I did not end up having to use all 40 tablets, but got away with one in the morning and one in the evening. This proves two things to me. Again, that the human body is an unreal machine. And secondly, that the work, advice, and therapy that Dr. Tamara and Dr. Paul and the team from Diversified Integrated Sports Clinic in Dubai gave me in the lead-up to the race is world-class, and I will be forever grateful. My MDS finishers medal is not mine. It's not alone that I'm able to do these things. It's primarily through the ongoing support and love from my wife, Holly, the way that my parents raised and still mentor me, and all of the people that support and believe in me. They were all on my mind during the 250 kilometers, and really, without them, I have nothing. Thank you for who you are and for being in my life. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the podcast, and I do hope you've enjoyed it. Of course, if you have any questions or any comments, you can leave them over in the comment section of this post, innerfight.com slash MDS, my story or innerfight.com slash podcast 172. Of course, you can email me direct at winning at innerfight.com. Please take a moment to hop over to iTunes, give us a rating, give us five stars, give us whatever you think we're worth. Until next time, take care of yourselves.